the 2014 attempt, I was 18, I'd spent probably two years working on the project full time. That's today's guest, 20-year-old Alex Staniforth. His first attempt to climb Mount Everest was cut short by the avalanche in the Kumbu Icefall that killed 16 climbing Sherpa. We then had to go home five weeks early, having not actually stepped foot above Everest Base Camp. That was the biggest disaster in Everest history at the time. At the time, because the next year there was an even bigger avalanche, this one caused by the Nepal earthquake. This time, Alex was stuck at Camp 1. I'm Ben Shank. You're listening to Mountain Meister. Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. If you haven't explored mountainhouse.com slash meister, you should because you'll get 20% off of your purchase. There's only two weeks left to capitalize on that deal And the food lasts for 10 years, so you should be set if you purchase it now. While you're using the internet, you can help us out. Leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. Helps us get discovered by other people. Our guest today is Alex Staniforth, and at 20 years of age, he's accomplished what some might consider a lifetime of adventures. He's the author of Icefall the true story of a teenager on a mission to the top of the world. Alex, thanks for joining us. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. 20 years old? That's right. 20 years old. Lots of people don't even find out about this stuff until well after 20 years of age. (laughs) When did you find out about this? Um, I guess the Everest journey and and everything and the outdoors, it's it's happened almost by chance really age isn't um age doesn't really object to me and in fact i i start my book in the first probably paragraph or so saying how age has never defined me mm-hmm. um i think it's it, it, it's just the way things have worked out really so overall would you say that your age is a net advantage or a net disadvantage <clears throat> definitely an advantage advantage um, well <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I mean, in terms of getting to Everest, in terms of, you know, the the fundraising and the journey and and all of that, it's definitely been an advantage that I've had to use. But in other ways, such as my physical condition, my training and just my general circumstances, it's a disadvantage. So there's definitely pros and cons, but overall, uh, age is definitely an advantage. So tell us more about what exactly you do. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with you. Sure. So, and again, this has all sort of happened in the past couple of years. Um, before Icefall, I'm, I've been a motivational speaker. So, for example, I present to audiences, you know, such as schools or colleges and corporate events and conferences and for anywhere between five people to 500. And I guess my passion is inspiring people, but the best, you know, I think the best part is, is being paid to do, you know, to, to do these presentations and get paid to do what I'm passionate about. Um, I'm also a director at a charity um, and an ambassador for some key organizations. So I guess, it, you know, I'm not just an adventurer, you know, I have to find a way to be, you know, to make that sustainable. And I guess I combine all these aspects. Um, but you guess you could say I'm a full-time adventurer because, you know, everything else allows me to do these things. But it doesn't do any good to just adventure and not tell people about it because 
uh, then that's almost just self-serving, correct? Sure, yeah. And, you know, that's why I speak. That's why I work for charities. That's why I write blogs. And, of course, I've got my book out because it's not just about the adventures. It's, it's to tell the story. Otherwise, how can I inspire people? How can I make a difference? One of the themes uh, in your writing and your speaking is overcoming adversity. You found out you had epilepsy at nine years of age. What was that like? Well, at the time, it was a pretty terrifying thing. I mean, I was quite fortunate in that I had a mild form. So a lot of people, you know, if they had epilepsy, couldn't do the things that I do now. And I say couldn't, you know, you can't really risk having a seizure on an 8,000 meter peak. But I've not had a seizure for 10 or 11 years. But at the time, um, it wasn't so much the epilepsy because that was soon brought under control it was more all the other problems that were associated with it such as anxiety and panic attacks you know I was a nervous wreck I was afraid of being anywhere without my parents for the fear of having more seizures so I didn't have any confidence I didn't really leave the house for quite a while um, I hated sports I hated the outdoors I have a stammer which I've had since I've been about three or four years old despite being a speaker and I was also badly bullied throughout my entire time at school. So it wasn't so much the epilepsy. It was all these things brought into one, which didn't give me any confidence, didn't give me any drive to achieve. And all of that has kind of propelled me to where I am now. But at the time, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty scary thing for a young person to experience when I should have just been out having fun like everybody else. You mentioned there that you have a, a stammer or a stutter, which I, it must have gotten better because I, I can't really tell. But I did read that, <laughs> and I also and I also read that you said you're not very athletic, but you're doing all these athletic pursuits. Oh, yeah, I well, I of course I am very athletic now. I would call myself an endurance athlete, you know, uh-huh. because I, you know I, I don't compete at a high level, but I'm very very I'm very physically active. I have to be to do what I do. But this is you know, this is it, you know, four or five years ago at school, um, maybe a little bit longer, I was coming second to last in a race at school in PE out of everybody in our year group, obviously a very far cry to where I am now, but with the stammer, um, you probably don't notice it because, uh, I went on a stammering course last week and I picked up some, some new techniques that have, allowed me to, to really work on it. However, well, if give you, us an example of one of the techniques. <laughs> well, you may not notice that every few words, I'm taking a sharp breath. That's a costal breath. So I'm speaking at the top of the breath. Huh. And with practice, I'll be able to say a full sentence without having to take the breath. And I'm wearing this belt so I can make sure I'm, it's a costal breath rather than just a normal breath. And it, it's, it's a work in progress, but if you'd heard me, for example, on one of my interviews about a month ago, um, it took us about two hours to do the podcast because I was just stammering so much. And until last week, at 20 years old, my mum still makes my phone calls for me. And, you know, I, it just took me too much effort. And even buying a bus fare can be probably the scariest thing I'd do all week. And at school, if I had to stand up and speak, I would have probably stayed off school that day. So it's definitely was there, but it's, it has its good days. It just turns up when it wants, you know? (laughs) How fascinating. That is so interesting. Yeah. And I guess the stammer has probably been 
in terms of adversity, um, something that a lot of people don't understand, but it's probably made that I've been harder than anything to overcome because, you know, speaking is something we all take for granted. And in terms of socializing and all that, and in terms of finding sponsors, you know, I, yeah. I'm going into a boardroom at 17 years old trying to sell my ambition and I can't speak properly, you know, and it's, I, I think at the same time, it's like everything, it's spurred me on to try and not only prove myself wrong, but to use that to inspire others as well. Yeah. And typically people like to do things that they're good at, but it sounds like some of the things you do didn't come naturally to you. Why, why no. did you want to pursue the adventure? Why did you want to pursue the speaking in the first place? The speaking started by chance. I was given the opportunity to do it. I like to, well, once I found the outdoors, I like to stretch myself. I like to, you know, see what else I could achieve. And at the time I was, I found climbing and I was trying every extreme sport I could from, you know, paragliding to scuba diving. And that was when I had the mindset of, you know, I can achieve this. I can overcome this. And when I started speaking, I couldn't believe how good, how fluent my, my stammer was. Hmm. And I wanted to do more and more of it just to kind of improve. In terms of the adventures and, and the outdoors, I mean, you know, I would say now I'm very physically able. I think in terms of finding Everest and, and all that, it was just, I found this sort of passion and purpose that I never knew I had. And I guess, um, you know, I found an ability for sport that, you know, I didn't really, really know I had, but with the adventures, it, it, it's more about fulfilling a, a purpose and a life ambition, really. And with the stammer, it's just, I don't know, I, I, I get it. It's the whole sensation of overcoming the limitations and, you know, just proving myself and the bullies wrong, really, just trying to, to be the best I can be. Mm-hmm. So if we move on to some of your adventures, you, you have two Everest attempts, correct? That's right, yeah. And then also I saw an Epic 7 project. The Epic 7 was just a little thing that I did in between. Little. Both my, well, <laughs> uh, it, yeah, by some standards. Basically, it's, it was a project I did in between both my Everest attempts. So the 2014 attempt, I was 18. Uh, I'd spent probably two years working on the project full time in terms of the training and fundraising. Got there, got to base camp, and then a day... Before we got there, there was a major avalanche which had to kill 16 people, 16 climbing sherpas in the icefall. So then, to cut the long story short, that was the biggest disaster in Everest history at the time. But we then had to go home five weeks early, having not actually stepped foot on Everest base, uh, above Everest Base Camp. So, as you can imagine, with the dedication and, and everything else, that was a bit of a kick in the teeth. Of course, we were lucky to get back safely. Um, so at the time, you know, we got home five weeks early and it's like, what the hell do I do now? But one of the key things I've learned and one of the key messages behind Icefall is that every obstacle is an opportunity in disguise. And so I realized I needed to keep the momentum. I needed to use this as a chance to to get in even better shape for my next attempt to to try and raise some interest, to try and raise the sponsorship, to, to raise the funds all over again. And I wanted the sort of buzz of achievement, you know, the last sort of, well, by that point, my last major sense of achievement from, you know, that feeling when you top mm -hmm. out on a mountain, that, that amazing 
awe is was when I climbed Mont Blanc, which was my first sort of peak when I was 17. And I'm, I kind of missed that feeling. I wanted something where the only thing that could go wrong was me giving up. Mm. You know, the, I was the only person who could let myself down. So basically the Epic Seven was a series of, of seven ultra endurance challenges to push myself mentally and physically uh, to fundraise for the Sherpas who died in the avalanche. And I really just to, to kind of keep me going back to Everest 2015. So I don't know if you've read any of it, uh, any examples of the challenges on, uh, at all. I, I read what they were. Yeah. I mean, well, it was all either on the bike or in the mountains. Um, I think three of the key ones for me were cycling from my hometown, Chester to Chamonix in the French Alps, which was about 880 miles in eight days. Um, unsupported pretty much all the way carrying all my own gear and not really knowing what I was doing. Um, that was, yeah, that was pretty tough. So you did um, a century bike ride back to back to back to back to back to back to back mm, to back. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much on the final day, I think I did a, I did a century and a half and a crash twice and you've got everything from, from, from crashes to sleep deprivation to, you know, lack of food to, getting lost it's just i mean it's it's all in the book but you know it's those sort of things where for example on on that bike ride you 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 crash your bike in the middle of the night and you you're lying there in the middle of the road and you've got nothing left to give and you're sobbing and you're sobbing just wanting to you know curl up in a ball but there's nobody to help you you're on your own it's two in the morning it's black you've got no supplies and all your only option is just to to find the grit and just get up and keep going. Mm-hmm. That, it's that sort of thing. That was the idea of the Epic Seven. But like you said, the the only thing that can really go wrong, maybe there are a few variables, but it mostly comes down to you. Whereas with your Everest projects, there's so much variability. What's the feeling mm. like when the failure is a result of something out of your control? Um, well, I guess I've got experience with that one. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think... Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, both expeditions, I, I don't feel anything bad towards myself, really. I mean, you know, apart from the fact that, well, I got home safely and people didn't. But with with the Epic Seven, you know, I, I completed all of them and there's a better feeling of ownership. But when they don't go wrong, you just, with mountaineering, that's just the way the game works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it. that's why it takes many attempts and it's just about perseverance it's it's finding something more than just a summit really mm-hmm. and you fund these expeditions through corporate sponsors right mostly yeah mostly corporate sponsors uh how do they react when you don't make it to the top i think that for me was probably the hardest thing because i feel a sense of responsibility and uh, ownership you know and a, a bit of guilt almost, you know, they, they've invested so heavily and something like that has, has gone so badly wrong that, you know, I can obviously do everything I can to give myself the best chance and promise them that. But they understand that there is risks. All sponsorship marketing has a risk. And they've, they've, they've all, I've been lucky that they've been very supportive. And a few of them have continued to support me on both attempts and will continue to support me when I go on any future expeditions which is you know i'm very fortunate for that um but yeah that's definitely a 
a feeling of burden towards me, you know, is I'm spending a lot of money. However, people think, you know, sponsorship, it's, it, it's begging. It's nothing like that. You know, I'm working very hard for them in return. So, yes, even though they don't get the summit shot, they don't get that moment, they still get, you know, any brands that associate with me get a lot of exposure and they do become very involved in the journey. So it's not as if they've just blown it on nothing, if, if you know what I mean. I'm curious, what, what is your pitch to these sponsors? Do you, have, do you have like an elevator pitch you could tell us? I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's a competitive market. And so I guess there's, there's only so much I can say. But uh-huh. I mean, my sponsors vary from, you know, as much as £100 up to maybe £10,000. And obviously you have to make, make it appropriate to the, to the level of sponsors. And it's, it's more a case of trying to find brands that fit and just spending a long time approaching them, trying to get the interest. And I send out, you know, a sponsor pack of, of varying levels and it just goes from there. But I mean, you know, I guess the more a sponsor invests, the more they would get. Um, and it's really good for them because I guess they're associating themselves with something positive and something different. There are probably some people in the, uh, that are listening to this podcast right now that would really love to know the details of what you say to these sponsors. They might steal some ideas. <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing. And I, I've, I've got to think of my next adventures. And I, I, I mean, what I would say to those people, well, there's a little bit more about it in my book. Um, I mean, I, I've got to think of, yeah, it sounds selfish, but sponsorships, is, it's a tough game. Yeah. And I've had to learn it. I've had to learn the trade the hard way myself through, through experience. So what I would say to them is, it, you know, perseverance is key. If you want to go on a big expedition or Everest or anything, it has to become your life. You know, you've got to be committed. And I was sending emails to the early hours of the morning um, every single day, not knowing whether the funds would come. And I guess my, my key advice would, would be that it's, you've got to live and breathe it. And in terms of the details, I mean, well, things, it really depends on the sort of challenge that you're doing. You know, I guess if I was to give away some advice, it would be, you know, make yourself stand out. You, you can do that with age. It's, it's no secret, you know, sponsorship, it's about a USP. It's about finding something different. And for me, that was my age. Yeah. Um, and obviously now it's, it's the story. It's the fact that, you know, I've got this backstory and been involved in the two biggest Everest disasters in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I just learned everything I could off everybody I could. And that's how I've learned what I have. And I would suggest anybody else does the same. There are no shortcuts, mm-hmm. really. So two Everest attempts, third time's a charm? <laughs> well, I... I don't think there's any kind of good luck things with Everest. I think it's just, it, you know, the mountain does what it wants, but I will have to return. I mean, it's been such a big part of me and my journey that I just, I don't think I could let it rest. I don't think I could go through life not knowing whether I could make it. And I don't feel I've had chance yet. You know, I don't think I've been given chance to, to truly put myself on the edge and, see how far I could go. And, you know, it, it, it seems almost a waste. Although I've got so much more out of Everest and the journey and the speaking and the book and, and all of that. Um, personally, I, I think I need to find out. Um, I don't know when for sure, but like I said, I mean, I don't see the point in waiting too long. 
Um, however, I want to get some more experience under my belt while I've got a chance. So I do have an, an expedition planned in the autumn um, on another peak in the Himalayas. And again, that's not been announced yet, but it's an 8,000er. So it's a big one. And that should mean that when I go back to Everest, I really am giving myself absolutely every opportunity. Yeah, when I was thinking of asking you that third time's a charm question, I realized that that was a very optimistic way of looking at things, whereas the more pessimistic view would be that you've narrowly avoided two of the biggest Everest tragedies. Mm. Perhaps the third time's a charm would be you involved in one of those tragedies. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's a balancing act. And at the end of the day, I mean, last year, it was a matter of hours that prevented me, well, not being here. And I know that and that lives on in my mind probably every day since. Um, but I think equally, it was just coincidental, I think, that I was there both years when these had, this had to happen. It's about to be the start of the 2016 season. Let's see what happens. But equally, you know, I, I think I've seen the importance of living living to the best possibility. You know, the guys that died at base camp, some people may say, you know, why take the risk? Why put my family through that? But personally, I see it that they've had their hopes and dreams taken away from them. And I think I owe it to them that I continue to, to pursue what's important to me. I have a roommate. His name's Max. And I ask him before all of my recent interviews, if he has a question for whoever I'm interviewing. Okay. Uh, for for Max's question, he's, he wants to know, how do you sleep at night? And let me explain that in a little more detail. Uh, Max is a very talented sleeper. Of all the people I know, he probably enjoys sleeping the most. <laughs> uh, so I think what he means by this question is that with so many responsibilities and, I guess, variables also on the mountain, I think that that would disrupt roommate Max's sleeping experience. Right. <laughs> so how do you sleep at night on the mountain? So on the expeditions themselves, you mean? Yes. So, uh -huh. Well, to be honest, um, at altitude, it can be difficult because of, well, because of the altitude, you know, it puts your body under some stress and you tend to have some pretty lucid dreams, actually. It can be quite weird. So <laughs> I'm sure Max would, en would enjoy the dreams, but um, I don't tend to sleep a lot anyway. I mean, I, I'm, I, I tend to be quite kind of busy and just don't really give myself a lot of sleep. But I find that normally I, I sleep very well. Some people can have a really hard time, but generally... Uh, um, you know, lights out, I sleep well. And huh. uh, Max would love the Himalayas because on the expeditions, you tend to go to bed really early, you know, sort of mm -hmm. seven or eight o'clock. And there's nothing worse than being stuck in a tent, tossing and turning. But personally, you know, you, you tend to sleep a good 10 or 11 hours every night. Because, you know, um, <laughs> right. I mean, on the summit bids, you'll be leaving at, say, well, on Everest, you leave, say, nine in the evening. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't really sleep. You'd go all way through the night and probably an 18 hour day um and then you've got to deal with sleep deprivation um and as a and as i write in the book you know this the effects of sleep deprivation can be pretty weird actually pretty pretty frightening um but on expeditions i mean everybody has bad days and you can have some nights where you just wake up every half an hour and it's like you you know you just want it to be morning again really mm -hmm. i've actually never met a roommate max that was sleep deprived he always seems to be well slept which is a good thing 
<laughs> Alex, we like to get a gear recommendation from all of our guests. Uh, you can do with it whatever you'd like. It can be from a sponsor or a non-sponsor. Do tell us, though, if it is from a sponsor, if you don't mind. Um, give us a gear recommendation. Sure. Okay. Um, hmm. Interesting one. Uh, well, I am sponsored by Marmot. However, you know, I won't associate myself with brands that I don't like, you know, just because they give me free kit or something like that. Um, I, I really am a fan of all the Marmot gear. I mean, in particular, I'd probably have to say my Greenland uh, jacket. It's, it's you know, it, it's a big down jacket, which is probably rated up to 7,000 meters. I mean, it, it's really lightweight. I mean, it's probably lighter than than some of my waterproof jackets. Um, yet, you know, it's just amazingly warm. And I mean, I've worn that on 6,000 meter peak summit days and, and you can just tell it's really well made. And when it's like really cold back home, I tend to wear that, just walk in the dog. I was wondering uh, that. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, besides the marmot coat, um, one more thing that I should mention, I really like their uh, full zip waterproof pants because mm. there's nothing worse than it starting to pour down with rain and you have to pull your boots off or try and pull trousers over your boots but but with their pants you know there's a zip all the way down so you can literally get them on and off in about 20 seconds yeah um, yeah which i think is really handy and you know lightweight as well uh-huh. i also swear by my satellite phone i use the Faria xt um which on Everest, you know, was, was a lifesaver. And I think having that when you're away from contact, um, you know, it's easy to use, it's reliable, it's, it's compact, it's lightweight. Those resources on Alex's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com, will also have links to his book and also Alex's social media accounts, his Strava on that page as well. One final question for you, Alex. That is, who would you like to hear next on this show? <laughs> well, you can interview my mum to get her side of the story because <laughs> um, she's she's been through a lot. Um, I would l- probably like to hear from Bear Grylls. Um, he's been a big inspiration to me personally, as you'll read in the book. Um, I know, you know, he has m- mixed reviews, but... He- uh, I've met Bear and he's as genuine in person as you, as he is when you see him on his shows. Um, he's He's got such a humble background, yet he's done some incredible things and achieved an awful lot. And in particular, his story of how he broke his back and then climbed Everest uh, 18 months later mm. was a big inspiration for me at the time because I was injured. I was out of training for probably 18 months before Everest. Um, and only got back to it about six months prior. So this, his story in particular was was what really got me through that. And Bear's also endorsed my book, which I'm really proud about. So yeah, if you can get Bear, that would be awesome. I would love to get Bear Girls on this <laughs> show. I, I've actually sent uh, his contact page on his website a, a note, actually probably three notes. Maybe you can help facilitate that connection. I can see what I can do. Yeah, great. <laughs> one one final thing. You you start each chapter in your book with a quote. Can you give us a, a quote to leave on? Ah, uh, man. Well, okay, well, I, I, I'll use one quote, and I don't tend to use quotes myself. I mean, could you hmm. see them all over social media and they get a bit repetitive? But <laughs> Tell there me is, about it. 
Yeah, and it's. Uh, I think when I was on one, one of my expeditions, uh, I was on Burundi and I was slogging up this wall, and I was trying to think of all these inspirational quotes that people had told me, and they just they just become an annoyance in your mind. However, there is one um, which is actually written across my bedroom wall, which I look at every day, and that's the greatest suffering brings the greatest successes. Very good, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. And I hope you've enjoyed the interview. That was Alex Staniforth. More on him at our website, mtnmeister.com. Hey, if you're looking for another podcast, check out The Sharp End. It's from Accidents in North American Mountaineering. If you're a passionate climber, you're probably familiar with accidents. Hopefully the publication more so than the accidents themselves. Anyway, they're putting all of these lessons and the stories in the form of a podcast, all hosted by Ashley Soppy. You can find it on your podcast platform. Just search The Sharp End. Until next time, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to this podcast. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and you've been listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.